0: Well, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter one. Actually, you all may be seated because I'm actually going to lead into this verse and uh, read it for us here in a moment. Why don't we um, Why don't we pray one more time as you're turning to Isaiah and uh, ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together in His Word? Let's pray again, Father, Lord. It is to you that we cry. Lord, it is to you that we bow our knee and we lift up our voice and pray and we make our requests known to you, Lord, because you are the God who hears and you are the God who sees and you are the God that listens to the prayers of your people. And so, Lord, we're so confident right now on the basis of your word that you hear our cry. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time now. I pray that you would give me a mouth to speak on such a on such a grand and glorious theme as we look at the concept of prayer and how it relates to who you are as the triune God of Scripture. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, through whom we derive every blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are uh, continuing our time in uh, the, the, the theme of prayer, and as we've been looking at that, Um, I've just been encouraged to greater prayer in my own life, and uh, today is no exception. I hope that you will be encouraged as we look at prayer and its relationship to the Trinity and what I've entitled the Trinitarian nature of prayer. And uh, let me just begin by saying that prayer is uh, uh, so practical because it makes all of our theology tangible. Prayer, we could say, is theology in action. It makes our doctrine very practical and it brings us into a theological conversation with God. And that's exactly what it is when that is exactly what prayer is. It is a conversation with God where we talk to Him according to His Word and according to His will and repeat the thoughts of God after Him and we pray hopefully according to God's will. That's the whole trick of prayer, is to try to pray according to God's will, because we want to receive the things that we have asked. And as John tells us, if we ask according to His will, we know that whatever we ask, we have. And, um, you know, when we talk about prayer, we're talking about uh, fellowship with God, what the Puritans used to call communion with God. It is how we, we commune with Almighty God. It is how we, 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 we fellowship with Him in our inner man, in our, in our soul, in the depth of our heart. It's how we have our conversation with God, and it's how we sit with Him and seek Him, and it's how we fellowship with Him. And you know, prayer is proof that we have been reconciled to God. Let me read to you before we go to Isaiah, Romans chapter five, verse 10, because it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exalt in God in through Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. So in other words, it is this reconciliation that has led to our exaltation. And you know that you've been reconciled with God if there is exaltation in your heart. A person who does not exalt in God has not been reconciled to God because worship is the byproduct of salvation. It flows naturally from the heart of a regenerate person. Prayer is worship, and that's why we can talk about these two things coming together. And having been reconciled with God, we worship God. And just as if we are not reconciled with God, if we are alienated from God, we have no part in exalting in God. We have no capacity to pray to God, and therefore, we have no fellowship with God. We are still at odds with God. We are still unreconciled with God. Therefore, the fact that unbelievers cannot pray, and because they have no real relationship with God, it is the clearest evidence that they do not possess Saving faith. John Owen, the great Puritan, John Owen, said that he would rather learn from certain people their theology out of their prayer life than out of their writing life. And that is because prayer makes you become earnest before God, transparent before God. is where all of your facades must come down if you are to have a genuine communion with God. But in the same way, be encouraged because a good prayer life is good evidence that you do possess saving faith. And God receives our prayers unlike the prayers of the wicked. God receives our worship. But you know, prayer is all about conformity. That is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Pray that you would be conformed to the will of God. To the will of God. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that worship is equal to prayer and prayer is equal to worship. They are one and the same thing. When God's covenant people in the Old Testament, coming to Isaiah, when they were so infected by the world around them that their religion was no longer recognizable. When they had slipped into the sin of syncretism, that is, trying to bring the religion of Yahweh together with other religions, like Baal worship. When the people of God had compromised in this way, God had rejected them, He had rejected their prayers, and He didn't listen to their prayers. If you're there, Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, we see that God went so far as to reject them in the most terrifying way because he actually hid himself from their prayers. Could there be anything worse than that? That knowing that God is hiding himself from your prayers will not hear the prayer of this backslidden people. He says here, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings and uh, burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, who requires, you, who, who, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. That's a serious indictment, by the way, because incense was supposed to be a soothing aroma to God. But here he's saying, because the, the, the prayer and the worship is so polluted, it's so compromised, he says, incense is actually an abomination. It's an abhorrence. He says the new moon, the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon, your festivals, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So what does this principle tell us now that we live in a post-second temple Judaistic world where we don't have a temple, we don't have sacrifices, we don't go to the labor, we don't sacrifice animals and and blood offerings and, and burnt offerings to our God? Because our God is the same God, He still requires purity of worship. He doesn't want us to worship Him, pray to Him with bloody hands, Bloody hands just simply mean that you are guilty of great transgression. Therefore, the very first principle here that I want to talk about is that God desires to be worshipped in a particular fashion. He doesn't just receive any kind of prayer. It has to be the prayer of a regenerate person, number one. Secondly, it has to be a prayer of faith, Number two, it has to be a prayer that is genuine in your heart. He cares nothing of prayers that are prayed in sort of a rote, religious, sort of a mundane way out of a perfunctory heart, which means a false heart, a fake heart, to put it simply. God wants more than anything for us to know the depth of His love by coming to Him with a true heart. Amazing for us because we have this kind of God. He's not a religiosity type of God. He's not a God that is simply pleased if you do the Christian thing. He wants your heart to be totally in tune with him. He wants you to worship him. As Jesus told the woman at the well, he wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't want you just to repeat the prayers of other people. He doesn't want you just to go along with the prayers of other people. He doesn't want you just to be courteous to people in the church. God is a God of hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants us to have a genuine, true, and living relationship with Him and praise God that He does. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. He doesn't want dead religious people. He wants people that are alive with the Spirit of God dwelling in them and moving in them and that are genuinely loving God. So, as we look at the fact that God desires to be worshiped in a certain way, I wanna point out to you that our God is a triune God. Our God is a God of Trinity. We worship, as we sang, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so for us today, I want to deepen our Trinitarian roots and how that relates to worship and prayer in particular. And so the very first thing that I want you to notice, if you turn to the Gospel of John, we'll be there for a little bit, Gospel of John verse four, or chapter 14 is that there is a call for Trinitarian prayer. There is a call for Trinitarian prayer. You mean that I just can't pray in whatever way I want? You mean I can't just utter whatever simple little prayer comes to my heart? Oh, sure you can. But if you want to strive to make your prayers pure, then you listen to the Word of God that is calling for a particular kind of prayer in our lives, namely Trinitarian prayer. You see this everywhere in Scripture whenever you see the words in the name of Jesus or in my name that means that prayer is to be done in a certain fashion in a certain way and everything is full of meaning beginning in John 14 13 what an amazing verse John 14 verse 13 whatever you ask in my name that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Watch this. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do for you. Or I will do it. Isn't that amazing? Even when you pray directly to Jesus, directly to the Son, you still must pray in the name of the Son. Why? Why is Jesus making us do this? I'll tell you why. Because in the Bible, the theology of a name is loaded with meaning. When Jesus says, pray in my name, he doesn't just mean use the word Jesus. That is not what it means. It means so much more than that, friends. It means think of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It means that you pray according to his authority. It means that you pray on the basis of what he has done. Oh, I tell you what, when you pray like this, you understand that as you're praying, you are thinking of the blood. You are thinking of the cross. You are thinking of the scourging. You are thinking of the atonement. You are thinking of the of the propitiation of the wrath of God. In other words, that, that you have a sacrifice, that the one that you're praying to is the same one that was sacrificed for you, and it's the same one who is saying he will do it for you. He will answer your prayers. Isn't it amazing? It's you're, We're bouncing around in the Trinity when we pray. That's what we're doing. And you can either get confused or... You could uh, learn about the Trinity so that you're not confused. You can either be confused about prayer and the Trinity or you can grow to learn and to grow to get to know the God of Scripture who is triune. Triune. Jump down to chapter 15. John chapter 15 and verse 16. Same thing. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Isn't that amazing? So now we've got two persons working on our prayer requests. Don't you guys like it when when you hear that people are praying for you? I do. I love that when I hear people say, hey, we prayed for you at the prayer meeting the other night. Oh, that brings me great joy. That's the best thing that I can hear somebody tell me. And doesn't it bring you comfort to know that it's not just Jesus that heard your prayer. It's the Father that hears your prayers. And it's not just Jesus that's going to answer your prayer. It's the Father that's going to answer your prayer. You have the resources of a triune God at your your disposal when you pray. Jesus says, ask of my Father in my name. Why didn't Jesus say, ask my Father in my Father's name? Is that blasphemy? No. But it is not Trinity. It is not triune prayer. It is not the purest form of prayer, we could say. Because when we're asking the Father something in the name of the Son, we are asking the Father something on the basis of what His Son did for us. We recognize, we acknowledge everything that the Father did. Sending His Son, sacrificing His Son, offering His Son, giving His Son to us. As Paul says there in Second Corinthians chapter. Nine, where he says, and I think it's verse 15, that this is God's indescribable gift. This is his is, is indescribable gift. God, I pray to you in the name and on the basis of your indescribable gift that you gave us. Again, look down at John 16, verse 23, 24. I'm building the case that Christian prayer is Trinitarian. Prayer. That scripture calls for this kind of prayer. Verse 23 In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, I will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Fullness, folks, in Christ. Fullness through Christ. Fullness and knowing that we know the Messiah by name, Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why political prayers are deficient, that's why moralistic, therapeutic, deistic prayers are deficient. That's why the prayers that you often hear people pray in certain contexts, let's say at the office or or, or on television or at some political meeting or something like that, and the person praying is just, he just won't pray in Jesus' name. People say, "Well, well, in your name, amen. What that means is probably they don't want to offend people by throwing Jesus in the mix, but what I'm saying is that unless Jesus is in the mix, you can't pray in the first place. Because praying in His name means that He has made atonement for you. Praying in Jesus' name means that He has died on your behalf. He, was, he died on the cross and He satisfied the justice and the judgment of God so that now for the first time in your life you have access to the Father. We'll get to that more as we go. But also in the same way, and I think we should point out, look at John Uh, 16 verse 26. Jesus makes it very clear that even though He is our mediator, the mediator between God and man, He's also our sacrifice because He takes us into direct fellowship with God the Father so that no, it is not wrong for you to go directly to the Father. It is not like the Catholics that would say, well, no, in order really to get to God, you could go to Christ, but if you really want to go to God, you've got to go through Mary. She has a more direct line the, the Mary's mediatorial office in the Catholic Church is a great blasphemy, to be honest, because it stresses that Jesus doesn't have as much of a connection with God that Mary does. If you really want your prayers heard, you pray to the saints. They will make intercession for you. You'd pray to Mary, the mother of God, because she, after all, was his mother, and she has a very endearing uh, relationship with the Father. I tell you, Jesus says, no, no. Verse 26, in that day, he says, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you, that you, that, to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from the father to make it crystal clear same theologian 1 John chapter 1 verse 3 our fellowship John says is with the father and with the son and let's add to our trinitarian theology the fact that not only are we in fellowship with the Father, not only are we in fellowship with the Son, but as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we are also in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So our fellowship is with the triune God of Scripture. What I want to point out to you is that every member of the Trinity contributes something to your theology of prayer. It contributes something distinct from the other members of the Godhead so that if we do not appreciate each member one by one, we will not see the full panorama of redemptive grace and of the, the, the reality of our, of our communion and of our fellowship with God. And so I want to begin by looking at our fellowship with God. The father, with the father. Many people today suffer from a a concept of fatherhood that is perverted and sadly that is um, distorted. They've had experiences from their own fathers. They've experienced abuse, unthinkable abuses at the hands of their fathers. And therefore, for many people, they struggle with the concept of the fatherhood of God, the fatherhood of God. Um, But our God is a good father. Our father is not an abusive father. Our father is a holy father. And so I want to set this holy father in front of you in three ways. Number one, by stressing his fatherhood. Number two, by stressing his adoption. And number three, by stressing his benevolence. So first, the fact that God is revealed to us as a father. This is the nature of God, that He is a heavenly Father. And because Scripture identifies God as Father, our, our, our relationship with Him is fundamentally familiar. God is our Father, and because of the fatherhood of God, that means that we are His offspring In general, as Acts chapter 17, verse 28 says, everyone is the offspring of God. Everyone is the byproduct of the Father. And in a general sense, everyone qualifies as an offspring of God. All of the families, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15, all of the families on uh, under earth derive their name from the Father. The whole concept of family comes from the Father. Adam is called the Son of God. The first man was in communion with his father in the garden. Luke chapter 3, verse 30, the genealogy there. Joseph is called the son of Enosh. Enosh, the son of Seth. Seth, the son of Adam. Adam, the son of God. God is a father, he has sons and daughters. Fundamentally, therefore, to knowing God as creator, and more specifically, knowing God as covenant keeper, means that he is our father. An example of this is 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God, when he enters into a covenant relationship with David, the king, to make him king, he appoints him and he addresses him as his son. He says in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. By the way, that little phrase, when he commits iniquity, that is omitted when it is, uh, uh, when it is applied to Christ, since Christ never committed iniquity. Verse 15, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, for your throne shall be established forever. The Davidic covenant was established on the basis of the fatherhood of God, the fact that he was David's father. Therefore, in a unique way, believers are God's children. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are, therefore, very privileged to be in the greatest family in the whole universe, having God as our Father. And we are in His family through His sovereign choice. Election is about God deciding to make a people part of His holy Trinitarian family. Isn't that amazing? To take part in the family of God and to enjoy God forever This is to be put into his family through adoption. So that's the second thing. Not only the fatherhood of God, but the adoption of God as well. Adoption is the way that God does this. He takes us and brings us near to him. Sadly, too often, the whole concept of adoption, the doctrine of adoption is really destroyed by modern notions of universalism and the idea that, well, we are all children of God. And when they say that, they mean we are all children of God in the same way. In the same way that you are a child of God, this person is a child of God. In the same way that a Christian is a child of God, a Muslim is a child of God. In the same way that a Christian is a child of God, a Buddhist is a child of God, which could not be. Further from the truth. No, we are uniquely God's children through adoption. Through adoption. The slogan that we are all children of God erases the the whole concept of sovereign adoption in the evangelical world. And in reality, Adoption is part of God's sovereign grace. It's part of His electing grace to choose and to bring us into His heavenly home through union with His Son. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, just to point this out to you. Adoption is very important on the order of salvation. Adoption is an important doctrine that stresses to us the character and the nature of God. He says in verse 3, very familiar passage to many of us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of his will. It's so sad that people distort the sovereignty of God and instead of highlighting, as the Apostle Paul does, highlighting the kindness of God, they want to highlight the sovereignty of God as if it's something evil or if it's something monstrous of God, as to say, how could God be so unfair as to choose some and not others, predestine some and not predestine others, when really the sovereignty of God stresses the kindness of God that he should not have chose anyone. He should have damned everyone in Adam. We should have never left the scene in the garden. Man should have been annihilated the second they partook of that forbidden fruit. But God, in his sovereign intention, his kind intention, this is the intention of his decreed will, that he would show his kindness. That he would shower undeserving hell deserving sinners with the kindness of adoption do you know how much it costs to adopt someone into your home oh we may want to adopt an infant because we want to raise him right we don't want that infant to be uh you know uh deficient in any way or we don't we want to take as much of a bank blank slate into our house as possible right Who wants to adopt a teenager that's 17 years old, going on 18, and just got out of juvenile hall? Nobody. That's like a death sentence. God, the beauty of adoption, when we think of the adoption of God, is that unlike natural adoption, physical adoption, spiritual adoption is wildly better. Because he doesn't just take people into his home that are Good people, clean people, people with no diseases, people with no deficiencies, people with no problems. No, my friends, I venture to say I stand before you as a specimen that God takes into his home the worst, the least. He takes into his home his enemies, those that were opposed and against him, those that were hostile to him. Who wants to adopt a person that is hostile to you? God does. Oh, don't tell me about what's fair and what's not fair, because I'm going to tell you about what's kind and what's not kind. You don't know anything about kindness compared to what God has done in His kindness for us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 if you're still there. It's all about bringing us near. It's all about taking the unwanted Caring and loving those that are unlovely. Making a home for those that have no home. Adoption is all about God bringing strangers into intimate fellowship and friendship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember That you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Can you find a better description for an orphan than that? Without hope. Without God in the world. Oh, you go visit an orphanage. You go visit orphans. There they are. They're really without hope. We were in Mexico. We got to visit these orphans with, with Joseph that he took into his home. So sad, they took these orphans down to the courtroom for their court trial, and guess what? This is the one shot they get. They go down to the courtroom, and they ask anyone here to claim these kids. You know what? No one showed up to claim these precious little boys. They're just sitting there all by themselves. They have no hope. Unless you give them hope through adoption, which is exactly what God did for us. He gives us hope by adopting us into his his house. Oh, I could stay on this all day. But then this would turn into like a seven-part series, so let's go on. Adoption simply means that God gives hope to the helpless. He gives a home to the homeless. He becomes a father to the fatherless, and God has always had a special place in his heart for the orphan and for the widow. Exodus chapter 22, God says, if you mistreat the widow, my anger will burn hot after you. God is angry with people that mistreat the needy. Isn't that amazing? So not only does God's fatherhood show us his grace and adoption, but also his adoption shows us the benevolence of of God the Father, the benevolence of God the Father. Because through adoption and through our fellowship with Him, through our our fellowship with our Heavenly Father, God brings heaven down on us. He showers us with His blessings, as Ephesians says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is showered down upon you. And you say, well, I don't always feel like God is showering me with blessings, that's because your mind is on temporal things. God's blessings are a lot deeper than that. They're much deeper than your bills and paying your bills. And they're, they're much deeper than your paycheck. They're much deeper than the kind of car or house that you live in. They're much deeper than the things that you see in this temporal world. They are eternal. They are invisible. And that's why they are unchanging, That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We look not at the things that are visible, right? Invisible. That's right. Christianity is a religion where we go around thinking of our minds. We are obsessed with invisible things that we cannot see. That's right. That's what faith is all about. God, because He is our Father, is so benevolent. He knows your needs, and He provides for them. David said, I've never seen the righteous go hungry or beg for food. Luke chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus had to teach this exact same thing to the disciples. They were tempted to question whether God was going to provide for them or not. And Jesus says, do not seek what you will eat, what you will drink, and do not keep on worrying. That's a major, major vice in the church. Worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Oh, we are so blessed. We are blessed and highly favored. That's what the Father does. So that when we pray, we pray with thanksgiving, as Paul says, always being thankful to the Father for all of these things. But secondly, we are not just in fellowship with the Father. We are also in fellowship with the Son. I want to consider our fellowship with the Son, and next week, Lord willing, well, the week after Easter sunrise or Easter service, we want to consider our fellowship with the Spirit, because that takes, uh, I think I have to take more time on fleshing out our fellowship with the Spirit, because I think there are so many questions. But here, I want to focus our attention on our fellowship with Christ. Our fellowship with Jesus means that we are in union with Him. In fact, this too is rooted in the reality of adoption. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Lots of Scripture, I know. When I don't do a verse-by-verse exposition it's almost like you can expect more scripture than usual, but uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. I mean to watch you with the word today. Romans 8, 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, Heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. So, as with the Father, our fellowship with the Son implies many important and crucial things for our prayer life. The fact that we have union with Christ, the fact that we have access through Christ, and the fact that we derive benefits from Christ. First, union with Christ. Have you taken time to study union with Christ? When is the last time you paused, you opened up a book to contemplate your union with Christ? Sinclair Ferguson has a great book on union with Christ. All of our spiritual blessings come from our union with Christ. John Murray says, Not a more important doctrine in all of soteriology than the doctrine of union with Christ. So, as we transition from communion with the Father to communion with the Son, we don't leave off thinking of the Father because it is the Father Himself that puts us into fellowship with His Son, Now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and a much misunderstood verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, or at least looking at verse 9. Many people have gone to this verse and they have found that this verse speaks about doing personal devotions with Christ. But it's much deeper than that, it's much better than that. God is faithful. God is faithful, through whom you have been called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the Father called us. It's not a calling like you have a vocation, okay? It's not a calling like you have a certain skill set or a hobby that you're called to do or a gift or a craft or some guild. It's not that. The word calling here literally speaks of salvific calling, that God called you, He chose you, and that He effectually summoned you to Himself. Isn't that incredible? You were going around the beaten path of life and all of a sudden you heard a divine summons to come Somebody asks Charles Spurgeon, yes, but aren't you the one that believes in the gospel when you come to the gospel? And Spurgeon says, trying to give all the glory to God, he says, yes, but why did I come in the first place? Why do we come? Because it's an effectual coming. That's why, it's an effectual calling, rather. We are called effectively by God. For what purpose? For this purpose, so that we would be in fellowship with, With his son now, fellowship with the son means that we have union with the son. We are mystically, spiritually bound, glued. How can I how can I make it more graphic for you? We are we 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 are so glued to Christ. I don't know how to say it. Like like we're just we're inseparable. (laughs) There is a sacred bond holding the Christian to Christ that cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. It is the faithfulness of the Father that puts us into fellowship with the Son. The Christ centeredness of fellowship deals with our election. It deals with our being called to communion with the Son. And really, this is ultimately the result of God's covenant love. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells the children of Israel Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God and He is faithful. When Paul says God is faithful, my dear friends, he is not making up the faithfulness of God. He is in a tradition. He is in a redemptive stream of the faithfulness of God. He's saying the same covenant faithfulness of God that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 7 he reaches its highest point when he puts a person into fellowship with his son, and that is what fellowship or what union with Christ is all about. I tell you, you start opening your mind up to union with Christ, anywhere you see in the Bible, anywhere at all that you begin to see in the Bible where it says that we are in Christ. Christ is in you. We are with Christ. Christ is with you. All of those phrases and words speak of our spiritual union with Jesus Christ. It's the only reason that you're going to heaven because as you lay on your hospital bed one day I was thinking about this the other day I woke up this morning I had all these aches and pains I thought you know what one of these days my aches and pains are gonna be really bad like really bad like laying on the hospital bed bad like not being able to get back up bad like waiting for the doctor to tell me that's it you have a few days or a few weeks or a few months or a few minutes whatever it is And the only thing that is going to walk me across the river of eternity is my union with Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus cannot lose me. The fact that I am in His hand. That He he has laid hold of me and I have laid hold of Him. by By the grace of God. Isn't it beautiful? You can't be separated from Jesus Christ. Christ is all. This is why union with Christ is one of my favorite things to study. Oh, it's just like eating dessert, but it's not bad for you. (laughs) We had cheesecake after the wedding last night. I just thought, wouldn't it be great if you could just eat this cheesecake? It's not bad for you. Just keep eating it, right? The doctrine of union with Christ is like eating cheesecake, and it's not bad for you. You can eat as much of it as you want. You can be as righteous as you want to be. Okay. Okay. Not only our union with Christ, but also our access through Christ. This is when we pray. This is what is at the forefront of our mind. This is what we're... When we talk about in the name of Jesus, this is what we're saying. We're saying that without Jesus, God is like an impenetrable wall. God is like a judge that you would never dare approach in your own righteousness. John Calvin said that without Christ... All that God is, is terrifying, dreadful judgment. That's right. You see that? Without Christ, God goes from being your loving heavenly Father to your righteous Creator, Judge, that will give you perfect righteousness on the day of judgment. And that's why our access to the Father through the Son, is infinitely precious. This is why our prayers, if they are directed only to Jesus, are not as rich as Trinitarian prayers. Maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe you've heard that kind of person. People like to pray directly to Jesus, in the name of Jesus, and only Jesus. Those people are missing out on something. And you don't want to tell them, stop praying to Jesus, but you want to educate them that if they pray in Jesus' name to the Father, oh, it's just so much bigger. There's so much more there for us. And the Bible says our access is a direct result of this. Look at Romans chapter 5, if you're still working on flipping through your Bible with me. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 And two, we have this full exception, this full access, this total perfect standing with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The prepositions of the Bible are crucial, crucial, through whom also we've obtained an introduction into faith. Into this, excuse me, by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. It is only through the mediatory work of Jesus Christ. He stands forever as our high priest, as our mediator between God and man. He is constantly, constantly interceding for us. So, lastly, we move away from simply being united to Christ and then at the same time having our access through Christ to benefiting from Christ, directly benefiting from Him. Turn with me to John 17. John 17, because there, what is classically called the high priestly prayer of Christ is where Jesus prays for his people. This is where Jesus can be found thinking out loud in his prayer. Isn't this amazing? We have a glimpse of the prayers of Jesus. We can know what was going through his mind, what he was thinking. This is so incredible to me. That we can eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer, examine his theology, and benefit from his communion with God. And how does it begin? Verses 1 through 5 has nothing to do with you. Isn't that amazing? He's gonna pray here for you, but verses 1 through 5 have nothing to do with you. The reason why that is not offensive, by the way, is because Jesus is praying to the Father and talking to Him and showing Him that He has accomplished the redemptive work. It's done. The plan is over. And then He goes on to to talk about having taught us who God is and His name. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world but on those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Isn't that amazing? Jesus prayed on our behalf discriminately. He discriminates in his prayer to say, I intercede only for my people. What is the doctrine of election built on? Is it built on the sovereignty of God for sure. What is the doctrine of the the believers standing with God? What is all of that built on? My friends, it is built on the intercessory work of Christ, that Jesus is interceding for you. Be of good cheer because, you know, you ever wonder, is anyone praying for me? I I got news for you. If you're a Christian today, Jesus is always praying for you, He is constantly interceding for you. He prays that we would be protected. He prays that we would be kept in this evil world that we live in, that our faith would persevere, that we would be guarded. He says in verse 12, I guarded them. In verse uh, 22, he prays that we would see ultimately the glory of God. This is part of Jesus' high priestly work. This is what he's praying for. And finally, finally, in Hebrews chapter 4, the reason why we can go to God in prayer, the reason why we can approach the throne of grace is because we have a priest. You say, wait a minute, I thought priests, I thought we didn't need a priest. Well, you do need a priest. You just need one. You need the high priest. And he will mediate, he will intercede for you, for me. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin. Therefore, based on that... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The greatest benefit of Christ's priestly office is grace. That is the greatest benefit, grace, grace to live, grace to stand, Grace to believe, grace to continue in your confession of faith. It is by the grace of God that you will continue to believe in God. And that grace is brought to you by the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. It was John Calvinist, Joe Beakey. Joe Beakey is talking about the theology of Calvin And he says that for him, prayer originates with the Father. It is made possible through the Son. It is worked out in the soul by the Spirit, through whom it returns via Christ to the Father. The triune God gives, hears, and answers our prayers. That's why it's important to pray Trinitarian prayers, because Without that, we miss the fatherhood of God. Without that, we miss the mediatory uh, role of Christ, the priestly role of Christ. And as we'll see, without that, we miss the power, the unction, and the reality of communion with God through His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we know that... The prayer that I am uttering right now is only made possible through your son, Jesus. It's only because of his work. It's only because of his indestructible life. It's only because of his sacrifice that we can utter any words to you. And so, Father, we're grateful today for your love. We are so thankful that you gave hope to the hopeless, that you filled us with hope, everybody that's in this room that's in Christ, that you give us hope, that you gave us a home, that you took us in, even though we were strangers, you, Heavenly Father, drew us near to yourself. And we've been brought near by the blood of the Lamb, and so, Lord, we know that our prayer is only made possible through the work of Christ on the basis of what he has done. And so, Lord, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this right. We thank you for the authority that we have to pray to you, that we don't have to appease you like many of the pagan gods, that we don't have to sacrifice our children, that we don't have to sacrifice our, 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 our produce, and that we don't have to offer things to dumb, deaf idols. Lord, because you sacrificed your Son. And because of that, Lord, we can have the assurance through your Spirit that we are in fellowship with you, in fellowship with your Son, and in fellowship with your Spirit. Lord, teach us to pray. Only use this teaching to to vivify us in prayer. Only use this teaching to provoke us in our homes in our prayer meetings, in church, to more prayer, to labor in prayer. God, forgive us for not laboring in prayer. And Lord, give us a burden to pray. Give us a pr- I know that in this church people struggle to pray. I know that in this church it is difficult for many people to, sh- to pray for more than an hour. I know it's hard. And Lord, if, if we only saw if we only believe that the triune God hears, then we would spend more time conversing with you in holy communion and fellowship with you. And so, Lord, give us the spirit of prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.